This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss diabetic retinopathy with Dr. David Chow. We'll discover how you'd know if you have a subconscious block with Dr. Lise Janelle. We'll find out about indoor growing with master organic gardener, Melissa Cameron. And lastly, we'll learn about cold weather skincare with beauty expert, V Mystery. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. Researchers at Penn State have made a breakthrough that will help facilitate mass adoption of affordable electric cars. A breakthrough in electric vehicle battery design has enabled a 10-minute charge time for a typical EV battery. This is a record-breaking combination of shorter charge time and more energy required for a longer travel range. Robots with social behaviors have been proposed as a potential solution to ease people's loneliness and the challenges of aging. Given the known benefits of the bond between owners and their dogs, some researchers are exploring the possibility of developing dog-inspired robots that can form similar bonds with humans. In a study out of Scotland, dog owners described a wide range of key behaviors, such as nudging the owner with a paw or looking back at an owner on walks, which appeared to facilitate such perceptions as the dog being protective or checking in with the owner. In analyzing the responses, The researchers identified seven core categories of behaviors that owners felt were important. Attunement, communication, consistency, predictability, and physical affection, positivity and enthusiasm, proximity, and shared activities. The researchers suggest that incorporating these types of behaviors into robotic systems could aid development of robots that could provide the same fulfillment and mental health benefits for people as bonding with a pet dog. One reason that it's so difficult to deliver large protein drugs orally is that these drugs can't pass through the mucus barrier that lines the digestive tract. This means that insulin and most other biologic drugs, drugs consisting of proteins or nucleic acids, have to be injected or administered in the hospital. A new drug capsule developed at MIT may one day be able to replace these injections. The capsule has a robotic cap that spins and tunnels through the mucus barrier when it reaches the small intestine, allowing drugs carried by the capsule to pass into the cell lining in the intestine. That was your tonic quick shot. I'll be joined by Dr. David Chow in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. If you're like me, you love delicious and nutritious foods. You need to know what's new in health and wellness, and you're looking for something fun to do. Why not visit the Tonic Marketplace at the Zoomer Show on October 29th and 30th? It's a specially curated area that has all your favorite health and wellness brands like Kalaya and Yosos. Free samples, tons of giveaways, lots of fun. See you at the Tonic Marketplace. For more information, visit zoomershow.com. November is Diabetes Awareness Month. For the estimated 11 million Canadians living with prediabetes or diabetes, almost one-third of our population, 
over 10% will develop diabetic retinopathy or diabetic macular edema, the leading cause of vision loss experienced by Canadians living with diabetes. Research shows Indigenous populations are considered one of the most at-risk for developing type 2 diabetes and associated DR and DME complications. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. David Chow, Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto and Director of the Toronto Retina Institute to discuss diabetes, including blindness. Welcome to the show, Doctor. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm happy to be on the show. Happy to have you. So, I guess we should start at the very beginning, and that is, what is diabetic retinopathy? So, you know, diabetics suffer from really a condition that leads to damage throughout the blood vessels in their body. And so when you talk about what do diabetics get into trouble with, it's usually the heart, the kidneys, and the eyes. And for me as a retina specialist, of course, I'm focused all in on the retina. So some of, some of the listeners won't be even aware what is the retina. The retina is, if you compare our eye to a camera, the retina is essentially the film lining the back of the camera. It's the nerve tissue that takes the light and information and processes it and sends it to our brain that then interprets what we're looking at. And so for me as a retina specialist, essentially in diabetes, there's damage to the blood supply pretty much in all the organs of the body, but the three big organs I mentioned. And when I'm looking in the retina, what I'm really looking to see in diabetics is are they starting to develop signs of damage to the blood supply? And what I'll start seeing when I look in the back of a diabetic's eyes, you start to see little hemorrhages or you start to see little areas where blood vessels start leaking. And the analogy I often give to patients is essentially it's like you have leaky pipes and so the diabetes starts to damage the plumbing in your eyes and then fluid starts leaking out of those uh, leaky pipes and as the fluid builds up in the film of your camera you're going to start taking bad pictures you're going to get blurry vision and essentially that's what diabetic macular edema is and as you kind of quoted diabetic macular edema is actually the leading cause of blindness in working age adults uh, around the world it's not just a Canadian issue of course and so it is a very, very important and, and serious uh, issue that, you know, we as uh, physicians are trying to uh, protect diabetics from getting. My understanding is, you know, eye doctors are kind of like front line to actually diagnosing diabetes because when you see this, it's obviously an indicia that diabetes may be present, right? You're absolutely correct. And so there are sometimes patients get sent to me for other reasons. And I'll take a look in the back and I'll see these small little microaneurysms or little hemorrhages. And I'll look at them and I'll say, hey, you know, do you have diabetes? And they'll say, no. I say, you better go tell your family doctor to, to check your blood sugars uh, because I'm, I would be concerned you may have diabetes. So you're absolutely right. There's a lot of patients that we will see uh, signs that will trigger an alert for diabetes. One of the interesting things about the retina in general, it's the only place on the human body where a physician can actually look and see the health of the blood supply. And that's kind of a cute or interesting little fact within the field of medicine in general. You know, uh, when I look into the retina, that's the only part where a physician can actually see the actual health of your blood supply. Interesting. So would this sort of damage to the blood vessels occur in pre-diabetes, or would you have to be a diabetic before we get to that stage? It's usually diabetic, and certainly the risk of developing these retinal changes or the retinopathy uh, increases with the duration of diabetes, and also it increases with the... um, level of control of the blood sugars. So if it's a, a diabetic 
who doesn't take care of their blood sugars and is ignoring their underlying condition, and they are the ones who are going to get into trouble quicker than those that do their best to control their blood sugars and take care of their underlying uh, condition. So what are some of the risks if you're not taking proper care if you have DR or DME? Yeah, so the pathway essentially, you know, we were were talking a little bit about the leaky pipe story. And the leaky pipe story with these kind of puddles of fluid that build up, that's the DME story. And that is the leading cause of visual loss. But it's not the only cause of visual loss in diabetics. And so, you know, as the pipes get damaged our body has this ability to try and repair the damage. And what ends up happening in the eyes is there's a release of hormones that essentially start to create new blood vessel growth in the eyes to almost accommodate or compensate for the the damage to the um, original blood supply. And these vessels start growing in the eye like weeds. And unfortunately, these vessels that that start growing, they can break and bleed. And and that's when you'll hear about a diabetic who will wake up and suddenly have an eye full of blood. And it's usually because they had some blood vessels starting to grow, that one of them broke, and they suddenly had a a massive loss of vision, and they have an eye full of blood. And so that's called proliferative diabetic retinopathy. That's the other main cause of of visual loss in diabetics. It isn't as common as diabetic macular edema, but it still is a significant cause of blindness in diabetics as well. So it's really the two conditions there in the retina that can really lead to big, big trouble. So is there any way to effectively grow back the tissue without these risks? So if, if there's some damage to the plumbing, as you call it, or the yeah. pipes, yeah. can the body actually regenerate properly, or is it just become sort of no. a morass? So that's a great idea. Conceptually, you know, if we had therapeutic agents that would allow the blood supply to be restored and fixed, that would be a massive move forward in diabetic care. So if you think about that, all the nephrologists would be begging for this, for the kidneys, right? right? Yeah. It'd be for, for it would protect against kidney failure. All the cardiologists would be begging for this to prevent, protect against, you know, uh, heart attacks. It's, so, you know, conceptually what you're getting at is a wonderful concept if we could ever figure out how to do that. And so the, the reality is at the present point in time, our management strategies are unable to do that. And, you know, and we're doing well, you know, so our therapeutic options have really evolved in my career. I've been practicing retina for 25 years. And, you know, I think back to 25 years ago to what I was doing compared to what I'm doing now, it's a night and day difference in terms of outcomes and diabetics who are are having a good functioning uh, life. So now that we're sort of talking about the then and the now, what, what are you seeing now in terms of trends or any concerns that you might have regarding DR or DME where you're practicing? couple different things. So you can take that question, go in a whole bunch of different directions. Sure. I mean, coming out of COVID, you know, that's clearly, you know, was a major issue in terms of getting patients to show up and follow-up visits and loss to follow-up. And, and you could say that regular screening visits around the globe have been absolutely the most important factor to protecting diabetics from trouble. And so, you know, it's recommended that every diabetic should have an eye exam once a year. Uh, And so that's a a written in stone. Not a single country on the globe disagrees with that. And it's the way to try and identify the early changes and start treatment before diabetics get into big trouble. And, And so I think, you know, when I look at kind of where we are right now, you know, we're coming out of COVID. We're absolutely, in the last six months, year, as people start to get brave to come see their doctors again, we're starting to see trouble that 
brewed or popped up as a result of a, a loss of screening and follow-up visits. So I think that concept is, has been a truth. But just in general, that is a concept that when you look at publications on diabetic screenings around the globe, yeah, you know, they have, have not been good. They've, they've suffered. Right? And certainly certain populations of, our, 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 of Canada suffer more, inner city, indigenous populations. And, and there are certain groups where they absolutely don't get their screenings done. And, and to no surprise, they're the ones that tend to get into more trouble. So I think there's that kind of element to that question. And then the, I guess the other element to the question, the then and the now, is I was hinting at kind of where we've gone with therapeutics. And, you know, back when I, I kind of graduated my training, we were treating diabetics with lasers. It was laser treatment nonstop. You know, if you had a leaky pipe, I took a laser and I tried to solder that pipe closed and stop the leak, right? Kind of like a plumber, right? And, yeah. and if you had blood vessels damaged and they were starting to bleed and grow, I would take laser and blast away their retina to try and shut down the hormones that were causing these vessels to grow. And, and those two forms of laser therapy were kind of probably ingrained with us for 10, 20 years. And diabetics hated it. It was particularly the big lasers we were doing to stop blood vessel growth. They were painful and they were not pleasant experiences at all, but they worked, but they were quite destructive. And then over the last decade, we've really shifted to a a medical age of therapy where we've moved to medications that we inject in the eye. And that tends to freak out patients and freak out human beings in general. Oh, I'm going to have to put a needle in your eye every month with a drug to to try and protect you from trouble or get you out of trouble. But those drugs have been brilliant. You know, the gentleman who created those has won the Nobel Prize, as he should have, for what he created. And our current wave of therapy, which has been more than a decade now, involves injecting drugs that block the hormones I was hinting at yeah. that cause the vessels to grow and that also cause the blood vessels to leak. And so these kind of class of drugs have really become mainstay all over the globe. And, you know, as painful and terrible as it sounds to have to come in to get a needle in your eye, I'm always pleasantly surprised at how patients, as they go through the experience, almost all of them look at me after the needle and say, oh, is that all it was? I thought it was going to be so much worse. I thought it was going to hurt like crazy, right? So, and if you ask a diabetic who's had laser and a needle in the eye, they'll tell you they preferred the needle in the eye. It was a much more pleasant, less painful experience than the laser treatment. And so right now, we're kind of in this era where we've had these kind of wonderful new drugs that have done a very nice job of controlling diabetics and getting them out of trouble. But where are we going? I guess the problem with the current story is that we're injecting drugs at a very high frequency. There are some diabetics, if I don't give them this needle in the eye every month, right, they start leaking again or Mm. they start bleeding again. And so it becomes one of these stories where the diabetics now go, oh, when is this going to end? Are you going to have to keep putting needles in my eyes forever? And so I think the next kind of pathway we're heading down is, uh, you know, new ways to increase the durability of these agents. Can we make it last two months, three months, four months, six months? You know, can we move into gene therapy where we can make the patient's own cells produce these anti-hormones, if you want to call it, right. so that they are become the, their own production factories to protect themselves. And so there are, you know, that's kind of the, the, the future direction of kind of where we're heading with trying to, to develop therapeutics uh, for these patients. 
Would nanotechnology be a part of it, where you would set up sort of like little mini robots to dispense <laughs> with the hormones? I don't. So no, that that I mean, interesting idea. But that, there, there's really been uh, gene therapy has really been is coming shortly. Okay. So that I would tell you, like when I go to my meetings around the world and see what we're all talking about and what everybody's working on right now, I'm going to tell you in the next five years, gene therapy is probably going to be the big explosion in terms of, you know, where you start to see things evolving. The other kind of popularized new version of, of therapy is stem cells. People right. like to talk about stem cells, right? And so stem cells is another kind of directive, and certainly I, there's plenty of early research going on there. But my gut instinct for what I've been seeing within our own field is I think gene therapy is going to be a much more successful next direction for us to go to kind of help diabetics. That's good news. We have time for one last question, and that is, are there any warning signs or preventative measures that people living with prediabetes or diabetes can take to reduce DR or DME onset? So my advice to patients would be, you know, in terms of warning signs, one, do your best to control your blood sugars. That's every study in the world will back all that up. Two, live healthy, right? Yep. They exercise, avoid obesity. You know, if you have hypertension, control your blood pressure, right? If your cholesterol's up, control your cholesterol. You know, all of these things are kind of common, well-known advice for general good health, and they absolutely all apply to the the eyes and the retina as well. And so there's kind of my first kind of comment in terms of to to all diabetics and pre-diabetics. You know, if you can control all those, the chance you're going to have to come visit me and I'm going to have to look at you and say I have to stick a needle in your eye is a lot less. And so the other point is is that when should a diabetic worry is if you start to see changes in vision. Right. So if a diabetic wakes up and you start to see floaters all over the place, what's all that stuff in my moving up and down inside my vision? You know, it could be bleeding. It does, it's not always bleeding. Sometimes it's just an aging change, but it could be bleeding from their diabetes. Or they wake up and now they're starting to say, you know what, I'm looking at the TV and it's blurry. Things are getting blurry or they're getting distorted. I look at a straight line. It's starting to look crooked right? If those types of symptoms start to pop up, then absolutely, they should come in to see uh, an eye care professional for an exam to see what's going on. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. That was Dr. David Chow. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn how to determine if you have a subconscious block on the tonic. Your family's health and wellness needs should come first. These days, taking care of a loved one should be as easy as ordering goods and groceries to your door on your smartphone. You need MedWorks, an at-home service that pulls it all together. We make healthcare and wellness services easy to navigate. MedWorks, at home your way every day. Download the app today. MedWorks. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. 
Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Lise Chanel is a human potential expert and relationship coach with over 25 years of experience. Since 1989, she's helped thousands of professionals, entrepreneurs, executives, and artists take quantum leaps in their vision of success. With an extensive background as a holistic chiropractor, Dr. Lee's founded the Heart Freedom Method, a powerful mind-body tool that dissolves subconscious beliefs and unlocks transformative mindset to overcome self-sabotaging behaviors. Welcome back to the show, Lee's. How are you? Hello, Jimmy. I'm good. So subconscious blocks. Mm-hmm. So we can't see them, Mm-mm. but they're there, right? Yep. Quite candidly, I'm a know-it-all. You know this, right? Because you've been on the show before. I don't know what a subconscious block actually is. Can you explain it? Well, it has to do with your subconscious mind. And your subconscious mind is in charge of your survival. And if your subconscious mind associates more pain than pleasure or more danger than safety to something you want consciously, it won't let you have it. I'll give you a great example. I had a client. She's an Olympic-level skier. And she came to see me because she had not placed in two years. So doing the mind-body work that I do, I tested her on, I want to win. Like an Olympic level athlete, that's like, if you can eat an athlete, you make no money, you sacrifice your entire life, you're doing everything. So consciously, she definitely wanted to win, but subconsciously, she did not want to. Why? Mm. That's the key. That's what I love doing. That's my powerhouse, that's for sure. And we found a moment when she was seven years old, she would be winning already because she was really good, but her brothers were not. So her mom would hide her medals and her trophies not to make her brothers feel bad. Ah. Uh So subconsciously, she had associated winning with making other people feel poorly. Interesting. So when you associate, because the whole point of, you know, being a human being is being able to survive and society is important. So when you end up with your teammates, Pavlovian bell rings, and your teammates become your sibling. If I win, my siblings get hurt. Right. So anyway, I did my work and she ended up placing. It was the first time in two years she placed. Unfortunately, it was the last race of the season, but she went on the podium for the first time. So, And did she it, piss off the rest of the team or was it okay? I'm sure some people were upset because they wanted to be on the team. But that's, <laughs> that is actually, that's, I love working with high level athletes and entrepreneurs and people because you tweak little things like that and it makes a huge difference. Like the blocks are really powerful. Because relatively speaking, your conscious mind that wants something is the size of a football and the subconscious mind in charge of your survival, the football field. So is this tied to your flight or flight system? Like is it that no, level? Of, fight or flight would be like more instantaneous. That one is more programmed from experiences. So they could be a little bit, but it's... So it's a learned behavior? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like fight or flight is... It's you, reactionary. It's reactionary. That one is still reactionary, but it's it's from a place of association of pain versus pleasure that, you know, in something that happened on a longer time frame. Okay. So how would you know if you have a subconscious block? All right. That's a great question. I love telling that to people. The first one is... Famous procrastination. Oh, I'm a world-class procrastinator. Yeah, it's not because you're a procrastinator or you lack willpower. It's because subconsciously you have associated more pain than pleasure to doing something that you want to do consciously. We actually wrote about this in in the upcoming November-December issue of the magazine. So I have a regular column where it's called Fixing Jamie. Ah, yeah. so, so we dealt with road rage and we're dealing with procrastination. Well, I would love to, maybe I can do my magic on you and you'll see it's like, whoa. So that's one clue. Yep. The second one is, you know what 
needs to be done, you're doing it, but it feels like drudgery, like, ugh, oh, I gotta go to the gym. And it's like, oh, you're doing it, but it's like, oh, you're doing it, you're forcing yourself yeah. on being on a diet, and yep. as soon as you can, you just fall off of it, because it's using too much of your willpower. Mm-hmm. The third clue is, you keep doing everything right, but you get the opposite results to what you want. For example, yep. you always end up dating the same kind of person. Okay. <laughs> Right. Or you want a promotion at work, you do everything right, but it's always your colleague that gets the promotion. But you're probably not doing everything right. You're doing everything right, but you know, at the moment that matters, right. you do the wrong thing. Ah, uh-huh. so choking. Yes. All right. So why do you think subconscious blocks are so detrimental? Well, actually, you can have subconscious beliefs that work for you. Sure. Like when I work with uh, clients that, you know, I found one that works, I, I'm not going to take it away because you can use it as a tool. Why? Because they get in the way of had everything. Any area of your life can be impacted by a subconscious block. As long as you have associated more pain than pleasure to something you want consciously, it won't let you happen. Like, imagine I was giving a talk and a conference in uh, Chicago, 350 coaches from all over the world. And coaches are supposed to be all about success. And I talked about this, the subconscious block and all that. So I had, I offered at the end, if you want me to test you, come. And there was a hundred people, hundred coaches that lined up. And out of a hundred coaches, only one was congruent with success Hmm. because everybody else had associated being successful with being alone, leaving people behind or people resenting you. It's a big fear to be successful. When I work with with my clients, there are two basic premises that I always check to make sure that they're free. The first one is I love myself. I'm worthy of love. Mm. The second one is I'm really willing and able to be successful. And most people, we live in a different quantum than we could actually. Like even right now, those of you who are listening, you might think, oh, I'm successful. But if you know that deep down you could be playing in a different quantum, a lot of people are holding themselves back so they won't be resented. And if you were born in a family where everybody was competing with each other all the time and you're appreciated, if you rise to the top, that's a different story. But in most families... You need to stay at the same level, not rock the boat, not stand out. Hmm. Okay. So let's assume we've identified that we have a subconscious block. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that we can do to overcome that? Well, you can come and see me. Okay. That's step one. Okay. (laughs) I also created a program. It's called Unleash Your Dream Life, where I teach people how to get rid of these beliefs. That's one for sure. But another one is whenever, and I love it when I work with my clients because they get used to this and it's like, ah, they come into me and they go, ah, I know I have one working against me because I keep saying I'm going to do this, but I do this inside instead. So one thing that you can do is when you feel it, just, just stop at that moment and become present with your body sensations. Okay. And just realize right now you are activating a Pavlovian condition response and just become present with it and strive to push through it. But the best way is to do mind-body work. For sure. And that's why that's why I love, love, love doing my work. And do you know Jack Canfield, Chicken Soup for the Soul guy? Sure. So he asked me to write a book with him because I presented my work at a conference and uh, he loved it and he's been using it. Like he has groups of 800 people and uh, he's been using the technique. So we're going to have a, our book's going to come out next year because it's something that's so common. Like I remember watching Elvis Toiko doing 
you know, a pirouette. And it was in the same arena that he had fallen the year before. And the announcers were saying, like, I hope he lands it because this is the same place that he, he fell last year. And I think if everybody knew that up to 95% of what we do is actually pre-programmed, we think we're having free will, but we don't. What do you mean by that? You think that you're actually choosing to have this job because that's the job that you think you have, but subconsciously you're being held back. You don't even, you're not aware of it until you start doing this kind of work and you start paying attention to that inner voice where you go, okay, I say that I want this, but I'm doing that instead. So yeah, so some scientists figured that up to 95% of what we do is actually pre-programmed since we were children. So I want to understand that. When you say that free will is a fallacy, is it's because we form these habits that we keep repeating? Is that what you mean? Or is it more... So I'll give you a very common one that happened to so many of us. You were born, you were put in a crib far away from mom. Yep. And you were put on a feeding schedule and you could cry and cry and cry and cry your little heart out and nobody would come. And then you start to believe like, what's wrong with me? Nobody's coming. Hmm. Maybe I'm not worthy of love. Then you cry and cry and cry and cry again. And still nobody comes. And because when you cry and nobody comes, it hurts. Now you stop asking for what you want. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have created beliefs about their worth that have nothing to do with the reality. Your mom is totally in love with you, but she can't come to you. Mm -hmm. And if you stop asking for what you want in life, you're creating a whole different life than you could have if you had freed yourself from these beliefs. And I've had many grown men cry in front of me when I work with them, you know, I'm worthy of love. And then they end up exactly in, in that picture I just depicted to you because it's raw, it's real, it's in your physiology and you keep living your life from that place, believing illusions because you are worthy of love. Okay. So is that the starting point is believing that you're worthy of love? Yes, for sure. When I work with my clients, I give them one sentence, all of you that are listening, when you face a challenge... Just take a deep breath and go, since I'm worthy of love, what's really going on in here? And if you can start using any challenge to your advantage, any support to your advantage, then you're going to grow because the automatic reflex is when we get challenged, like what's wrong with me? Nothing is wrong with you. Obviously, if this is happening, it's either because you didn't master it before and you need to master it, or it's sending you in a direction you need to go. And once you start looking at life from that place, it's a game that's really fun to play. Fantastic. Next time you come on, I'd like to explore what do you do if you don't believe that you're worthy of love? Will you come back and talk about that? Sure. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. For more information about Lee's, visit drleesjanelle.com. That's D-R-L-I-S-E-J-A-N-E-L-L-E.com. For great health and wellness articles and interviews, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll discuss growing indoors on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Lack of magnesium can lead to serious health issues. Sadly, one in three Canadians aren't getting enough. 
Common signs include trouble sleeping, low concentration, irritability, headaches, muscle cramps, or spasms. Could you be lacking? Choose from New Roots Herbal's Ultra Gentle Magnesium Bisglycinate, Heart Mag for added cardiac support, or Clarity Mag, a no-brainer for anyone over 50, exclusively at health food stores. To find a store near you, visit newrootsherbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Melissa Cameron is an organic master gardener and founder of The Good Seed, a garden education and design company. She's been featured on websites such as Farmer's Footprint, Floret, and Toronto Life, and is a regular garden contributor to Canadian Vegan Magazine. The Good Seed specializes in organic edible gardens, pollinator and native garden plantings, and sustainable cut flower garden designs. In addition, she's the co-founder of the Abermory Garden Collective, a not-for-profit that grows organic food and donates it to families with young children facing food insecurity. And for more information, you can always visit thegoodseedgarden.com. Welcome back to the show, Melissa. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks, Jamie. How are you? So I'm cleaning up in the garden. It's a massive job. I've got one of those like massive black walnuts and 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 it's just shedding leaves and and now I'm sort of turning my mind to the hibernation portion of the season, you know, where I don't do as much. But there is the capacity to grow indoors, right? There is. That's right. So let's talk about microgreens and sprouting and mushroom kits. Okay. So how can you keep growing indoors over the winter? How do those work and what can you do? Yeah. I mean, I think just to address what you were first saying, you know, choosing to grow indoors over the winter is is kind of a great idea for a lot of us because there is this sense of loss that happens outside when we move indoors, you know, at the end of the fall. And for a lot of us, there's a wonderful sense of purpose that the garden gives us, even if it is a lot of work with your black walnut. So it can definitely make sense to do some growing indoors over the winter. And I just want to say for everyone out there who wants to take a break, it can also equally make sense to take a break. But then we'd have nothing to talk about for the next time, right? right? So So let's talk about my favorite types of growing indoors over the winter season. And that's microgreens. Mm -hmm. That's sprouting. And I would love to just maybe at the end touch on mushroom kits. Okay. Why don't I tell you a little bit about the difference between microgreens and sprouting? Yep. The basic difference is really quite easy to grasp. Microgreens are grown in soil and sprouts are grown in water. Okay. So in general, microgreens live up to their name. They tend to be, you know, they look more like baby greens. Think pea shoots, for instance. And sprouts are germinated seeds. So sprouts grow a little bit quicker and you eat the entirety of that sprouted seed and growth. And microgreens are a little bit slower growing, and you would typically trim them just above the soil. Let's focus on the microgreens for a second. So I've seen these sort of devices. They almost look like little refrigerators where you, where you grow microgreens. Like, Do you utilize that, or does it need to be that complicated? It doesn't, actually. The equipment needed for both sprouting and microgreens is pretty minimal. So for microgreens, you're going to need a grow light. You're going to need some good quality organic soil, and you're going to need something to grow it in, so a grow tray. Mm-hmm. And these materials, you can purchase them. Or, you know, one of the things for microgreens that's really easy if you just want to try it, you know those plastic clamshells we get when we buy strawberries at the grocery store, for sure. instance? yes. That's a perfect little microgreen container. You can shut the lid to create some humidity before they sprout. And also, you know, it's got holes in the bottom of it, so it will drain well. 
So there are sort of DIY ways, but I do suggest a light source for the microgreens. So what are the benefits of microgreens versus sprouting? There are a lot, a lot of benefits. I would say they're almost endless. So first off with sprouts, this is a way to help you eat more legumes. Um, So think about sprouted beans and lentils, and you can add those to your sandwiches, for instance, just trying to think a little bit outside the box with them. (laughs) And microgreens are great because they give you that nice, fresh hit of green and that taste of like really fresh baby arugula, for instance, Mm -hmm. just grown and added to whatever you're cooking. But by growing either or, you're really eating seed to plate in the freshest way possible. And this is really important because when we do buy these things in the store, you know, they're not quite as fresh. Right. So you mentioned that like there's sort of some do-it-yourself hacks for, for growing the microgreens. What about for the sprouts? What do you need for that? So for the sprouts, you need to start off with a mason jar. Mm-hmm. And I want you to buy a sprouting lid. So there are a couple of different companies that sell them and make them. They're either plastic or metal, but it's just a mesh lid that fits in both the standard and or wide mouth, depending on what you buy, mason jar. Mm-hmm. And that allows you to rinse your sprouts daily, which is what you need to do in order to keep them from souring. And so it's such minimal equipment when you think about it. Water, seeds, and a ring and a mesh sieve for your canning jars. Yep, that sounds easy peasy. So you're getting all the fresh food and you're growing it yourself. So it's organic, right? Unless you're choosing to put pesticides on your sprouts and <laughs> microgreens. Although I don't know why you would. So so that's a good thing. I suppose, is it a money saver? Like sprouts aren't tremendously expensive, but I suppose it's pretty self-sustaining if you're just putting some seeds in soil or, or water, right? Yeah, actually, that's a really good point that I wanted to chat about, and I'm glad you brought it up. We know inflation's an issue right now, and we know it's a big issue at the grocery store. So choosing to eat organic is just getting a little bit more expensive and just eating even non-organic. So anytime you can kind of cut out the middleman and do the growing yourself, there's a little bit of an investment up front, but I think it's a huge payoff, and it's really great on the budget. I think you can also really increase the variety of what you consume. I know when we go to the grocery store, we're sort of at the mercy of what's there. Yeah. And if you think a little bit ahead and do some planning, you can really choose some fun mixes. So for sprouting, for instance, they make one called like a sandwich mix. So it's three or four different types of seed. So you get that variety of flavor and you get that variety of nutrients. That makes sense. If somebody's just starting... Like, which is the easiest or which would you recommend for somebody who's just sort of wading into this area? So both are very easy, like we chatted about. Yeah. But I would say tackle one before the other. Don't go doing both at once. Just okay. master one and then the other. Start with sprouting. Yep. Get your sprouting routine down. Get your setup nice. Enjoy the flavors. Figure out what you like, what you don't like as much. And then move on to the microgreens because that is going to require the lighting and that's a little bit of money up front. But... You know, I think if you have both of those going, you're really bringing that greens from the garden feeling indoors over the winter, which is the goal. Everybody does have their personal preferences. But like if you were going to tell somebody to start sprouting, where would you tell them to start? Like what kind of sprouts would you recommend and and where would you get the necessary sort of seeds to start? Right. So that's a great question. So if you live in a big city and you have access to some of the larger chain grocery stores like Whole Foods, or Organic Garage, a lot of these places or the smaller sort of organic little mom and pop shops will have sprouting kits. So you can go there. Mm -hmm. I'm also seeing lots of sprouting kits at the nurseries now too. So where you buy your regular seeds, you will have them. 
I think buying online is a pretty safe bet. There are two companies I really like. One is called Mums Organic, and they're Canadian. And you can even buy, like, the starter kit from them with a variety of different seeds and then the equipment. And then for microgreens, West Coast Seeds has a great variety, organic. You can buy different size packages. So if you want to try, for instance, pea shoots, which I think are the great way to start for microgreens, Mm -hmm. you can buy just a few. And then if you love them, you can buy in bulk and save more. Okay. Are there any shoots or sprouts which are more finicky and you wouldn't recommend for somebody who might get frustrated not sort of knowing what they're doing? That's a good question. I think that the hardier shoots are easier. So the sunflower sprouts, the pea shoots, because the stem is thicker, they tend to have uh, fewer problems. Uh, when a little bit too much humidity arises. So sometimes you can have what's called damping off with microgreens where there's some die-off at the surface level just because of some humidity issues. So if you have those thicker stems like the microgreens for the pea shoots and the sunflowers, um, you'll do better. But I think you should go for it no matter what. Okay. No, no, we're not trying to discourage anybody. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> saying, you know, sometimes you, you see something and you think, oh, I can do that, but it's, you know, a little more challenging than others. So sure. why would sprouting or microgreens be a better solution than just simply growing greens or herbs like in little pots? Like, why is this better? That's a really good question. And that's one that I get asked a lot because a lot of people are pretty surprised when they learn that I don't grow salad greens indoors, for instance, over the winters, and that I choose to pivot instead to microgreens and sprouts. Hmm. And the answer is, one, yield. So you're going to get a much, much, much higher yield by doing sprouts and microgreens. And two, it's a much faster turnaround. Lettuce greens, for instance, can take upwards of 50 or 60 days before you get something substantial. Mm -hmm. You know, microgreens, you're looking at a couple of weeks. Sprouts, you're looking at five days sometimes. Oh, wow. Okay. So I think both of those create a compelling story. We have time for one last question, and that is mushrooms, because you mentioned that earlier. Give us your top tips for that. Okay. Mushrooms are a huge topic right now in the growing industry, um, and there are some great home kits to grow your own mushrooms, which I think is really cool. So basically, you go, you purchase them online, they send them to you, different types of mushrooms. So oyster mushrooms, shiitake, chaga. And one of the companies I like is called Happy Caps. Mm -hmm. And they just have grow bags. They send them to you. You literally open the grow bag, mist it, create a humid environment. In a couple of weeks, you've got mushrooms to harvest. So cool. Okay. So one last, last question. Asking (laughs) for a friend, you can't grow psychedelics at home, can you? I think that's coming. (laughs) For another day then. Let's leave it at that. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Jamie. What would you like to talk about next time you're on? I would love to help you gift garden things for the holidays. Fantastic. That was Melissa Cameron. To learn more about Melissa, please visit thegoodseedgarden.com. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss cold weather skincare on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. 
Mystery is a certified skin therapist and founder of Skin by V, a private facial studio in Toronto that specializes in awakening the skin through personalized and science-backed treatments. Skin by V also sells a selection of curated luxury skincare products, both online and in-store. With more than 25 years of experience in the beauty industry, V has worked on thousands of faces and developed a highly tailored approach to the art of facials. Welcome back to the show, V. How are you? I'm good, Jamie. How are you? Thank you for having me again. Always good. So <laughs> it's getting a little chillier out out there. It's just starting. Just starting. Yeah, yep, it sure is. It keeps roller coastering. So how does the cold weather impact our skin? So I always find this time of year, people are saying, you know, it feels either too oily or I'm starting to see dry patches. Sometimes in worst case scenarios, they're even starting to experience flaking. For some of my clients who obviously wear makeup, the makeup's not going on well enough. So it doesn't feel smooth or it just doesn't look, it looks cakey because the skin texture is flaking. In worst case scenarios, people who have rosacea or a lot of sensitivity, they're finding that that's almost becoming heightened. So it looks more it looks more irritated. So this transition period is always the most trickiest. If you're not using the right products, obviously drinking the right amount of water and having a good healthy diet. So yeah, that's how our skin is now changing. Okay. And it isn't just the external colder temperatures that are impacting. Like my experience is then you come into like maybe a warm house or something, or maybe the, the air is dry because you're not properly humidifying. And I would imagine that impacts sort of the ping-ponging would impact the skin as well, yeah? Oh, 100%. So I find when clients go outdoors, it's colder. So, you know, they're obviously wrapping up that cold, again, with that rosacea, sensitivity, a skin barrier that might be a little bit more compromised. So if it's a little irritated, it's unbalanced. And then you come indoors and that heat is up and the skin's like, whoa, what just happened? And it just doesn't know how to transition as easily. So, yeah, the extreme temperature changes between the outdoors and the indoors really does have an impact. And what a lot of people are seeing on the skin surface is irritation. And in some cases, there's little bumpies coming out, little congestion. And again, going back to what I said originally, which is the flaking of the skin. So all of these things are having an effect on on what's going on on the surface. So I have an active dog. Wait for it. I'm I'm coming to why this is relevant. Okay. And I have to walk our dear dog at least once a day, sometimes twice a day. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those dogs that has like a double coat. So she doesn't care if it's 10 below zero. We have to go on those walks. So what would you recommend to me as a preventative measure if I'm going to have to be outside in the cold? Yeah. So moisturizers are key. One big thing that I find is clients who maybe don't like the feeling of something um, on their skin will skip the moisturizing step. Sometimes people will think, oh, I don't need a moisturizer because, you know, I have an SPF on. Um, People don't want to use a moisturizer because maybe they feel like they're breaking out. You've got to understand your moisturizer is a large molecular structure, which is created 
to have this beautiful envelope on the surface of the skin to lock in all the good stuff and keep out all the bad stuff. So the moisturizer is key. In the daytime, you can use something which is a little bit of a medium weight, so not a complete gel-like substance, but something which is a light moisturizer. And at nighttime, definitely look for something which is a little bit more heavier, maybe even an oil added into that to really help envelope the skin. So your daytime, when you take that dog for a walk, make sure you have a moisturizer on your skin because that will just keep all the good stuff locked in. And then when you come indoors, the skin's not going to be like, whoa, what just happened? And then create that traumatic experience to it to compromise the skin barrier. Are there any benefits to being out in the cold? Like with your skin? Like, is it helpful in any way? I don't think it's helpful in terms of, you know, making it better or worse. I think the thing is, we all need some level of fresh air. I find like obviously in Canada, it is definitely much more harder for us going into that winter time because just psychologically, we don't want to go out there when there's a blizzard, but we need some level of fresh air. So that is key, but it's not that, you know, if you didn't get it, your skin was going to fall off. (laughs) Okay. And so like, I know because I've had you on the show before when we're talking about being outside in in, in the warmer weather, Mm -hmm. it's important to have UV protection. Is that still relevant in the winter? A hundred percent, hands down, UVA, UVB still penetrate through our ear. Even if there is no sun, sometimes when it's dull and cloudy and gray, that's when we need that protection the most. So please put your SPF on every single day. The one key factor to also remember is a lot of us are connected to our devices, our devices, which is our phones, our laptops, our desktops. These things emit a blue light, which is almost more damaging because it can penetrate deeper into our collagen and our elastin cells. That's what's going to break down. It's also going to create a bit more of a traumatic experience on the skin barrier and compromise that further. So use an SPF every single day, 365 days a year. So the SPF will protect you from from sitting in front of the computer? I'm asking for a friend. Yeah. I love that. I love these little regroups that we have, Jamie. (laughs) It does. It's really going to protect the the skin from blue light. There's also free radicals in in our environment. And these free radicals are also attacking our skin cells. So people who do maybe have rosacea, acne, sensitivity, pigmentation, all of these concerns, our skin is a little bit more fragile. So the blue light will attack it quicker. So when we have that SPF protection, which is a broadband spectrum, a mineral, a physical SPF, it's going to reflect those rays and it's really going to shield and make sure that the skin doesn't further get compromised. You've opened up a whole whole new universe to me, V. Yes, I, had I love that. that. This is excellent advice. Okay, so let's circle back to cold weather. So let's say perhaps we haven't moisturized or there's still some skin damage as a result of all the factors that we've talked about. What can you do? So the first things first is I'm a big believer of cryotherapy. So when you are cleansing your skin in your ritual morning and night, and you must cleanse morning and night, morning, you just want to do one cleanse, an oil, a balm, a gentle creamy cleanser is enough. You always want to rinse that with cold water. 
cold water has this beautiful cryo effect, which is going to soothe, calm, and constrict any type of inflammation in capillary dilation. So that is going to be 50% of the reduction in any of these experiences that a client or somebody might be experiencing. The next thing is um, obviously keeping things simple and a bit more gentle in your skin ritual. So when I say that, try not to over-exfoliate the skin. If you find that there's a lot of dry skin on the surface, you choose things which are more enzymes, um, less things like salicylic acid or glycolic acid. And you can use those products, but use those products more sparingly, you know, maybe a couple of times a week, or maybe even if you are really sensitive, you want to kind of do that a couple of times a month. The less exfoliation you're doing, the less trauma you're going to create on the skin barrier. So you almost want to kind of give it more TLC, more nourishment. So you want to look for more of like your hyaluronic acids, more of your niacin, you want things which are comforting, healing, and repairing on the skin. Another big thing is um, I have these tools called the Gua Sha Cryo Sticks. These are amazing, simple additions to really help encourage that um, circulation, that surge of oxygenation, which is healing and repairing. But again, calming and soothing because the cryotherapy is really going to bring down any type of inflammation. We all have some level of inflammation in our skin. So the Gua Sha Cry Sticks are a simple addition, morning and night, or you can do it once every so often. Again, it's a treatment. It's simple, a couple of minutes. That's all you need. But you really want to look for calming and soothing, using cold water, and always making sure you're moisturizing. Oils are great as well. They really help lock in those lipid loss in the skin, and SPF is non-negotiable. Fantastic. We have time for one last little question. And I don't know the answer to this. I'm just throwing this out there. Are there any foods that you would recommend that would sort of add to the emollients of your skin? Is there anything we can sort of do that's natural? Food-wise? Yeah. Yeah. So I always go to warm and hot when it comes to my gut health. Our food, when it's warmer and, and, and more on the hot side, so less of like the cold salads and things like that, our warm foods, our gut is actually able to digest it, break down those good enzymes and actually use the nutrients in a more effective way. So I always say try and reach for warmer and hot foods over cold foods. Cold foods take a longer time to digest in our system and especially during the colder months. Where I always say use cold on the skin, I always say try and reach for hot for your gut health. So it's a little bit of a, yeah. of a wait, what are you talking about? So always look for hot. I always say trying to keep a rainbow of vegetables and, you know, grains and nutrients in, in your diet is always key. So yeah, I would definitely say that now. During the cooler months, um, I don't know about you, Jamie, but I love to have a glass of wine, maybe even an extra one. Um, I always say if you are drinking alcohol, one glass of alcohol, always follow with one glass of water to make sure that you're keeping everything hydrated. So the next morning you don't wake up with dehydration or puffiness. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me again. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. David Chow, Dr. Lise Janelle, Melissa Cameron, and V Mystery. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, 
Contact information for our guests at links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The September-October issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.